Hello, constant listener. I wanted to take a moment and say thank you. If you're still out there listening for my stories, my personal situation has changed a lot over the last few months and it's limited my time that I can dedicate to this horror podcast, but I've had some wonderful fans reach out to encourage me. So, as a thank you this evening, we will be doing a double feature. Both requested subjects are from wonderful fans I've met through Twitter and Facebook. Luciferos X and Brandon of New Zealand. Thank you both for reaching out. These original Coppershock horror stories are for you. Each episode will have their own openers as well. Enjoy. Will you just stop the pounding of that cabin door? A woman turned about, then leaned down as she stuffed a rock near the bottom to wedge the door shut against the blizzard outside. The group of people looked to one another in shame, hunger, and sickness. They were going to die out here in the cold. They had lost their trail, the snow had covered it so deeply. By the time they were able to really see the ground again, they realized that they were hopelessly lost. They found empty cabins nearby to take shelter in, but that was almost a week and a half ago. All food is now gone. We need to talk about it. A man with a long mustache called out to the quiet room. The silent group of eight looked around to one another. Five men, two women, and a young boy. I cannot even think of it. A woman in a blue shawl tucked her arms around her stomach harder. Someone could sacrifice themselves for the rest of us. Patrick stood up, rubbing his hands together in the cold. A bachelor on his own, but a neighbor to all standing in this very room. The woman in the blue shawl looked to the ground and away from Patrick's eye contact. What about him? A bulking man with a fur hat stood and pointed to a wavering thin young boy. The woman standing by the boy, with her hair in a long braid, stanced herself physically between the large man and the young boy. But he's so weak, the man continued. He's not gone yet. The woman in the braid spoke in such defiance, the large man eyed her, then took a step back. The cabin fell to silence again, listening to the wind. I have an idea. Patrick exited through the door to the outside, feeling the wedged rock roll away. The group of them stood nearby, listening, as the snow attacked the sides of the cabin. The cabin door once again burst open with Patrick clasping something inside his hands. Eight mid-sized twigs. Patrick then snapped one in half, placing all of them neatly into a grip in his palm. He turned around and handed the bundle to the woman in the blue shawl. A lottery. Whomever draws the short branch. They're the one. The group looked terrified to even touch the simple sticks in the woman's hands as though they were cursed. For one unfortunate soul, it would be a curse. Go ahead, Patrick said. The large gruff man took one step forward and drew the first stick. It was a long one. One by one, each person drew a twig, 
and gave a large sigh of relief when they saw its comforting length. There were two left. Patrick looked into the woman's eyes, and he drew out a short stick. A silence came over them again. They all looked at him expectantly, breathing heavily in desperation. Patrick stood there feeling all of their eyes on him. They were wishing for his sacrifice, wishing for his death. They all circled him like lions in an empty savanna, hungry. But after five terrifying minutes, Patrick realized none of them actually wanted to kill him themselves. They all just stared at him, wishing him dead, ready to rip out his flesh and eat him whole as he stood. No one spoke a word, just the incessant wind from outside. Patrick could no longer take the pressure, and in a fit of madness, he tore off all his clothing and ran out of the cabin into the wilderness and falling snow. He felt the sting of winter under his toes and heels as they scraped over rocks and fallen wood debris. He cried out into the wilderness as he fell onto his knees. He wanted the cold to embrace him, for death to take him now, now, so he didn't have to be alive when his neighbors finally broke and would bite into him, dig their nails into his skin and rip it open to suck the warm blood underneath, to devour him alive. Patrick couldn't have that, and as he sat there in the dark night, he felt snowflakes kiss his back and hair over and over again. Then, in its silent manner, the frigid air rendered him unconscious. Patrick woke up on the floor of the cabin, delirious. His comrades had brought him back. He gave them all one last look, then fell to the floor, dead. In no hesitation, the woman in the blue shawl knelt weeping beside him. She then raised Patrick's arm, taking her first large bite. It was the day after Christmas in 1846. The Sierra Nevada mountain range was unforgiving, especially in the company of the Donners. Hello, constant listener. I'd like to introduce you to a new friend of mine. On Twitter, someone by the name of Luciferus X has reached out to me. I recommend checking out his feed. He reviews other horror podcasts just like mine. We got to talking, and he brought up a subject I've mused about for some time. Hunger. Many years ago, I had been waiting in a restaurant lobby with my two parents. The hostess stood behind a podium and would yell the names of parties waiting to be seated. Donna, party of three, your table is ready. My head snapped up at the hostess with a look of irony. My father leaned over to me, then whispered, There was four of them, but they just couldn't wait. It was a very dark joke, but admittedly, we both chuckled. In that same restaurant lobby, I started to think more on starvation. I've never had it, not really. I turned to my mother and began the conversation asking about the provocation of killing something to eat it, that I'd lived my whole life without having to do so. And being an animal lover, if something absurd like a zombie apocalypse happened, I'd be turned into a vegetarian by force. 
How could I take a breathing chicken in my hands, feel its muscles squirm under my palms, have its eyes blink at me and then crack, feel it go lifeless in my hands? Oh, it made me sick just thinking about it. My mother shook her head and simply laughed. Tasha, <laughs> it makes you sick thinking about it now because you don't need to in order to eat. But honey, I'll tell you one thing. If you get hungry enough, then left it at that. She walked away because our table was ready. It sent a shudder through me. She was right, and I knew it. If I got hungry enough, I do believe I could snap another neck for survival. Algonquian Native Americans based in the northern areas around Lake Erie consider cannibalism, even to save one's own life, under no circumstances should be committed. For if you do, you and your home are left vulnerable to evil spirits that wander this earth with an insatiable hunger. Of the 83 people who entered the Sierra Nevada mountains for the Donner Party, only 45 lived to see the California sun. The Donner Party is a grim tale, admittedly, but what shakes most people about the Donner Party is that they're civilized people, just like anyone, just like you. If I already know, I can kill a chicken if I'm hungry enough. What would you do if you became hungry enough? I'm Tasha Wheelhouse, and this is Copper Shock. It comes down to this. I'm going to put this story in the one place for people who neither know me and can't follow this back to me. Glorious internet. I'm just hoping that someone out there will believe me. To start, the rest of my family say it was just a weird week. We'd been camping at Lake Powell for decades. It was a tradition long before I was even born. We'd drive up from Flagstaff or Phoenix, Arizona to go boating and camp out. When I say the word camp, I suppose I use it loosely. For our family, it's not like normal camping. We have a houseboat. Comes with air conditioning, a fully running kitchen, working televisions, and yeah, indoor plumbing. But like the small kind you'll see in mobile homes. So when I say camping at Lake Powell, what I really mean is like a huge mobile home that's 70 feet long, two decks high, and has a slide out the back. Lake Powell sits on the Arizona and Utah border, so as you can imagine, it's insanely hot during the summer. A typical day is around 104 degrees. But as long as you dress light, drink lots of water, wear sunscreen, and mind yourself to stay in the shade, it's really not so bad. Lake Powell isn't what you'd picture as a typical lake. It's not like a small plot of water in the middle of wilderness. Lake Powell is miles and miles long, and the water runs up into large, towering canyons that switch back into smaller creeks. There are hundreds of places you can camp at Lake Powell, and even when I'd been going for years, I know I still haven't seen all of it. Last chance bay it is, my grandfather said cheerfully. My father then walked up to the open top deck and started the engines with a mild roar. Underneath, the two massive propellers came to life, churning the water from a deep green into a bubbly white blue. My father usually drives the houseboat on its commute up the channel. While this boat is definitely slow, lots can go wrong and people can and have been killed if they get careless driving something so massive. 
I once saw a houseboat that had been sunk halfway under the surface and listed to its left side. I shudder. There's something about a sunken water vessel that creeps me all the way out. Pictures of Titanic gave me nightmares as a kid, and now hearing how people make it a full-time hobby to explore sunken ships makes me question their sanity. When I look at sunken ships, even halfway, it's like a giant's corpse that's beginning to discolor and decay. If I get too close, its rotting skeleton will collapse on top of me, pulling me down into the water depths with it. So I steer clear of sunken ships. Even sad-looking houseboats only have sunk. You may be asking yourself, how could someone be so dumb to run something so enormous and slow aground? At Lake Powell, because it's a water-filled canyon, there are lots of towers of rocks that will rise up, but not break the surface of the water. They're like hidden reefs, but they're solid rock, and they kind of look like ghosts in the water. It's so unnoticeable unless you're actually looking down for it. Most areas of the lake are deep enough you don't need to worry, but sometimes, if you're driving too close to the canyon side and you're not in the middle, you can get unlucky. As we traveled, my dad started to pass the Glen Canyon Dam. He smiled and he said to me, Hey, Tasha, I hope someday we go on the dam tour. I smiled back. Can we go see the dam generators? Get dam gift shop things, my brother chimed in. Listen to the dam tour guide, I cheered. Have a damn good time, dad said. Oh, wait, he winked at me. The family game was to say the word damn in as many sentences as possible without actually cursing. The second we did, we all had to stop. My mother to this day still hates that game when going by Glen Canyon Dam. The commute takes roughly two hours for us to get to Last Chance Bay. I could feel a cool breeze pick up off the water with an earthy plant smell. After beaching, we'd done the hard work to anchor the boat and we're getting ready for some splashing fun. Now look, I get that thus far in the story, it's not been scary. If anything, I'm describing an awesome vacation you guys should really consider doing someday. Hey, Grandpa, we need to leave the generator off for a bit so all the kids can go swimming off the slide. Grandpa agreed and went to the main switchboard at the captain's chair. He flipped a few switches and removed the key, placing it out of reach of little kids. Why do we need to turn the lights off? Because, honey, there's a machine that makes the electricity but it also makes invisible air poison when it does. Granted, that was the best way I could describe carbon monoxide poisoning to my little niece. I hope that clears up for her someday. But it's okay, honey, it's turned off. Come on guys, hurry, get your jackets, we're gonna go play some melon ball. I pressed on my little cousin's back, encouraging her to come and play with us. Watermelon ball's pretty fun. The next time you're at a pool party or swimming at a lake, you should try it. You get a watermelon the size of a basketball and take it into the water. You make two teams and attempt to pass the watermelon underwater to a teammate by pushing it. It's so heavy, it sort of glides underwater and eventually floats to the surface. If you're desperate, you try throwing it. If your teammate doesn't catch it, you risk it sinking down by their feet before it floats back up and someone else may have a chance to snatch it away. I was swimming, feeling my life jacket bunch up around my jawline and trying to swim over and catch up with my young cousin who had the watermelon. I wanted to knock it out of their hands and hope to pass it to my teammate. That's when I felt something brush my outer thigh. I hesitated and reached my hand below the surface to brush it away. 
When I looked back up, I saw my cousin was already across the goal line and there was nothing I could do. So I sat there, feeling my ankles and feet float in the water. Lake water's not very clear, it's just kind of green, and I couldn't see down past my chest. As I bobbed there, I let the lake water lap over me in small kisses. I looked out reflectively at the distance. The tall cliffs surrounding us are these giant red rock landscapes that plummet downward into the water. My cousins were gearing up for another melon ball pass, and I kicked my feet around to help spin me in a circle to get ready for the play. Just then, I felt something wrap around my ankle and pull. I immediately yelped and started kicking hard. It let go, and I started to yell my cousin's name, asking him to cut it out. It wasn't the first time he'd taken off his life jacket to swim underwater to poke or tickle feet and freak us all out. I kept looking around the water, but he didn't surface. I felt my stomach drop as I turned to face the back of the houseboat. My prankster cousin was standing on the back porch, sipping a sprite and watching us play melon ball. It couldn't have been him. I started to swim for the beach faster than I'd ever done so in my life. It felt so out of place to feel so scared in such warmth and daylight. I stood up from the water onto the sand, looking back at my other cousins, still playing melon ball, and they asked if I was done. Dripping and unbuckling my life jacket, I said I was, and that they should reorganize the teams to make them even again. I didn't want to think about it too much. I've had my feet touch weeds underwater, even had fish brush past me, but I've never had something bony with padded appendage fingers grab my ankle like that. It didn't pull me underwater or anything, it was too weak to be anything so dramatic, but it was just enough to make me question who it was that did that to me. I brushed it off and figured it was a different cousin trying to scare me and I just didn't catch them. My extended family is very organized when it comes to Lake Powell reunions. We have matching family t-shirts, each night of the week has an activity, like karaoke, trivia quiz, card game night, and this particular evening we were going to do glow stick night swim. Everyone is required to go, all grown-ups and kids alike. We get glow sticks and necklaces and bracelets, like you do at the dollar store, and wear them while going down the slide from the second deck to the water. I had pink and green glow stick necklaces that I'd wrapped around my head in a halo that night. After our swim, everyone changed out of their swimsuits and traded them in for pajamas. I grabbed my sleeping bag and pillow, then trekked up to the top deck. All the grandkids slept up there. There's roughly 10 of us, so it's not like I slept alone. Taking great care to bend my legs in case I needed to zip my bag over my head if it rained or if the moon came out. When it does, it comes over the cliff edges high in the sky, and it's kind of like someone turning a flashlight in your face. As I laid there, it was tradition for me to look up at the sky and count as many stars as I could before falling asleep. In the heart of Lake Powell, there's a full absence of light pollution or anything that would obstruct you seeing everything out there in the vastness of space. I see a remarkable spattering of Milky Way and little sparkling stars. I mean, they really do sparkle and pulse. They don't look anything like that in the city. I fell asleep.
there was a splash off to my left. The casual humming of the air conditioner unit on the back porch could be heard. But you mostly feel a stillness of wind in the middle of the night. No motorboats turning over water, causing man-made waves to come crash on the beach. It's just general stillness. I heard another gurgling of water off to the side where I had heard the first splash, and wandered over. I placed my hands on the metal railing and leaned over, looking down. From the top deck, it's about an 18-foot drop to the waterline. The whole of the lake was black in this low light, and the moon comes up at about 3 a.m. Judging by how dark it still was, it'd be hours before it came up. I saw some water start to swirl and ripple, like a large fish swimming just under the surface and had disturbed it. When you wake up in the middle of the night while camping, it's so much more different than when you wake up at home. It's like being thrown into the middle of a movie scene. It's just you looking out over the black, still water and a blue hue over the tall cliffs that cradle the massive lake between them. I've always found it to be beautiful, to be part of a large, vast place that had nothing to do with anything in the outside world. It makes you think deeper about life and where you'd like to go. Another splash. I look down again, squinting my eyes to the water. I see two fuzzy, green-glowing dots, hazed out and deep under the water's surface. I stupidly thought one of the little kids must have let their glow stick go and sink into the lake. The two glow sticks gently floated upward and looked to be within arm's reach of the back porch. I gently stepped down the spiral staircase at the rear of the houseboat. I felt my feet on the fiberglass staircase as I tried not to make a sound. The two little glowing green dots came closer to the edge of the back of the boat. I crouched, extending my arm just above the blackness of the still lake water. The two glow sticks broke the surface of the water and sat there. I leaned down, reaching out my hand again, scooping them into my palm. A face beneath them rose in the glow stick's green light. Horrid, jagged, sharp teeth, like they'd been filed down to points. A puffed and mangled face, but it almost looked like it was smiling at me. I only saw it for half a second because I reeled back and knocked my ankles into a step, hitting the floor hard. My head landed onto the back sliding glass door. It made enough noise that it woke up a few cousins sleeping up top, and my poor grandparents who were sleeping in the master bedroom at the back of the boat. I felt lightheaded. My legs and arms were really heavy, like I couldn't move them. I looked up to a small gathering of my family standing over me. They were demanding what I was doing just hanging out on the back porch when the generator was running. I could have been seriously poisoned. I told them I wasn't there long enough to get carbon monoxide poisoning. I was only there for four minutes. Shortly thereafter, it was determined that I wasn't really injured that bad, and it was time for bed. I pulled myself into my sleeping bag and looked up at the sky to count the stars. But there weren't as many, because the moon was fully risen and shining high in the sky. Then there was the incident with my cousin Allison. It was very early morning. The sun wasn't up just yet, but light enough to be morning twilight. A group of the older cousins wanted to go wakeboarding. 
I'm rather amateur myself when it comes to wakeboarding. I sat there for a bit, positioned to go. When I'm in open water, I start to think about all the things underneath me that I can't see. What's swimming around there? Even worse, playing into my fear of heights, I think about how high off solid ground am I actually? Imagining if all the water beneath me in that moment were gone in a blink, how far would I fall to the rocks underneath? I'll remind you, this lake is a filled-in canyon. I'd have a very long time to scream before I stopped. I know, it's irrational, and I don't think about it at all if I'm in a boat, just sitting there in my life jacket, alone, in the middle of a vast body of water. I don't know how someone couldn't ponder something like that. My uncle was leaning over the back of the speedboat, examining the propeller. Allison had a towel wrapped about her waist, and she shouted at me. There's a bunch of weeds wrapped around it. We're trying to get them untangled from the propeller. I nodded and gave a weak thumbs up to my company, watching my uncle dip his hands in and pulling out clumps of weeds. My cousin was kneeling on the back seat facing me. She was holding up in one hand a bright orange flag. I could hear my breath as I sat there, feeling the waves of the water rock me back and forth in my life jacket. I looked up when I heard the sound of the engine turning. The propeller was still, but the engine was on. My cousin held the flag higher and was still kneeling facing me. I yelled out the universal, hit it, to tell the driver that I'm ready to go. But the second he threw the propeller in gear, my cousin toppled and lost her balance, throwing herself into the water behind the boat. I felt a lump rise in my throat for a half second. If she got sucked into the wake of the propeller at all. I let the rope go as the boat got away, and I popped my feet out from my wakeboard to give myself more mobility. Then I hesitated. What if I do get close enough to Allison? What if she's a mangled, bloody mess and there's nothing that I could do but sit there in the water mixed with her blood? I felt panic and confusion cloud my mind as I just kicked my feet one after the other to fight the current toward her. I felt relief wash over me when I saw her swimming there, a bit shocked, but clearly just fine. Her towel was gone, and I passed her the wakeboard to use as a makeshift buoy. As the speedboat circled back to pick us up, I asked her what happened. Allison had been going on boating trips as much as I had. Her just falling out of the boat was a bizarre fluke. I was kneeling on the back seat, and it broke. Just as the boat started to go forward, I fell out and then... What? It'll sound odd, but I felt my towel pull me down. I panicked because I thought it got caught in the propeller, so I abandoned it. But it couldn't have been, because the boat's just fine. She pointed at the speedboat still coming toward us. If weeds had gummed up the works for a few minutes, a towel would have done all kinds of damage. As my uncle pulled up near us, he made sure Allison was okay. He then informed us he thought it was time to go back. My cousin agreed, and she pulled herself out from the water onto the back deck of the speedboat. As I pulled myself in, I looked at the seat where Allison was sitting before. The lumber for the seat had cracked, and it looked all bent in. I was just grateful she wasn't chopped up like a blender behind the boat that day. I'd like to note, my family isn't careless when it comes to dangers or accidents for Lake Powell. 
We are extremely seasoned lake campers who know how to jump into action if an anchor gets loose during a windstorm, avoiding the tow rope for tangled propellers, or how to unbeach the boat safely if the water goes down too fast overnight. It was the last day of our two-week vacation, and we were going to go wave running. We have two wave runners that would seat two people each, and they're really fun to drive. We have a game where we try and push the other team off of their wave runner by splashing them with water. Keys for wave runners are linked to a bracelet with an easy detachment from the vehicle. So if you fall off it, the whole thing shuts off so you can swim back to it without it going too far away. We were having a lot of fun until it was my turn to drive. I don't have a lot of experience with wave runners, but from what I understand, as long as we were in a space with little traffic, we'd be fine. I gave our wave runner such a sharp turn, it bucked off Allison and I both, screaming with joy into the water. Every moment before this point, when we'd fall off, I'd let my body tumble and spin in the water not knowing which way was up, and calmly let my life jacket do the work and bring me back up to the air. With my eyes shut, I faced toward the surface, letting the water brush over the curves of my face. The bridge of my nose hit something so hard I saw stars behind my closed eyelids. A splitting pain lingered on my face as I reached my hands up expecting to feel the cold break of a waterline. Instead, my hands were groping the underside of hard metal. And it was wide. I actually couldn't find the sides. I tried to swim myself over and away, letting out small bubbles to help prolong holding my breath. As I swam, I thought I'd be clear from the wave runner's underside and reached up again. No. No, it was still there, as though it had drifted purposefully over me to keep me from getting up to the surface. All bubbles had drained from my lungs. The only thing my body was screaming at me to do was open my mouth and just breathe. Breathe. Now. But knowing only water would get past my lips and infiltrate my body told me I can't allow that. It would be giving up. I could feel my head getting light and the pressure around my chest started to become unbearable, like it was going to cave in even more if I didn't breathe. In one last desperation, I reached out both of my arms as wide as they would go, held them up above my head, and one hand was able to grab the side of the wave runner and forcibly push it away from my head instead of me trying to swim away from it anymore. Soon as I came to the surface, I gasped in a deep breath. It burned all the way down. I remember thinking that sounded so dramatic, but I was desperate for air. I was nearly trapped under the wave runner for good. My cousin swam over to me really concerned. I started to cry. I've never been so close to being dead in my entire life. Not to say drowning isn't something you can't come back from, but if you don't have any hard surface to do CPR within those crucial minutes, the wave runners would have been less than useless. You couldn't drag a body onto one without tipping it, and even if you were lucky enough to get them on there, there's no surface to really lay them out for compressions and mouth-to-mouth. If I'd gone unconscious right then and there, I would have tied. No question. I sat in the water feeling myself take large, sighing breaths, then looked over to my cousin. I'd kind of forgotten about my face's high-five with the underside of the wave runner. In fact, my nose wasn't quite broken. But dang, it was bleeding a lot. Blood from the upper bridge of my nose poured out over my face and down my mouth. It looked really bad, but turned out to be a reasonable cut with a lot of bruising. 
We took me back to the houseboat and got our little first aid kit to clean me up. Out of love, my parents forbade me from going on the wave runner ever again, and I didn't argue. The last night, the sky was actually clear, and the kids could sleep on the roof again. I was glad for it. The stars really are so comforting. I woke up, one more time, stillness again. Everyone about me asleep, a soft, warm breeze came up through the canyons over the water like it sometimes does. Moon was up. I suppose that's what woke me, it's pretty bright. I could see details from the canyon rocks over a mile and a half away, all of it in shades of grays and blues. Yet as I sat up, I could feel like something was watching me. I had once heard that it was pure human-animal instinct. If you feel as though you are being watched, you are. The back porch had a thump and a splash behind it. I walked over the top deck to the back and looked down. On the back deck, hanging off halfway, was a chewed-up pink towel with yellow cartoonish flowers. Allison's towel. I turned about when I heard a strange cry. It was almost a crossed screech, and then I looked behind me to the source. On the bay, high up on the rock face, was a man. He was far too tall to be a man. His back curved over like an old grandmother's spine, shoulders hunched up, and he was bald, save for some small antlers growing out of his head that looked like thicket branches. His toes seemingly melted together to look like a cloven foot like a pig. He was horrifying to look at. He looked so thin, frail even. It then hit my stomach, all at once. I was his prey. He'd been attempting to wound me or my cousin enough to try and catch us. I pictured the only time I'd been close enough to his face that first night with the glow sticks, and shuddered. The thought of those pointed fangs clamping down on my hand as I reached for the sticks, or ripping open my calf underwater where I swam and not being able to see him underneath the water. No wonder I could kick him away so easy, he didn't look strong. But every time I'd encountered him, we'd always survived. I watched him bend down on all fours, and with amazing speed, he bounded away like an overgrown hairless dog up the sheer rock. Over the edge of the cliff he went, and just like that, he was gone. I didn't fall asleep. I just stared at the cliffside, expecting him to come back until the sun came up. It was time to leave, and the timing could not have been more perfect. We unanchored the boat, and we're going to make the drive back to the main dock to sum up our vacation. Needless to say, I was happy to go. I came home and did some research. Accidents happen, but at Lake Powell, some accidents happen and bodies are never found. As far as the clever creature, from my research, I believe it's a wendigo. A cursed spirit inhabiting a human, a human who was desperate enough to eat a human at one point, bewitched with a fervent hunger for only one thing. I think you can guess. The more it eats, the bigger they grow, causing them to be even more hungry and never being able to satisfy their body. That thing must have been a person at one point. Maybe even a lost camper? Doesn't surprise me. 
the desert isn't kind if you get into a fix, and lots of people go missing at national parks. Why not whomever he was? But judging by the size he was when I saw him, he'd been hunting a while, and he'd been successful too. Last Chance Canyon, home of a desert wendigo to the best of my knowledge. The more I thought about it, the more it made sense. So far away from technology, buildings, and help. The wilderness where accidents happen. Miles of land where people can get lost. Be safe when camping, and keep your wits about you. It'll save your life one day. Thank you for listening. This story was dedicated to Luciferos X. I hope you enjoyed it, and please stay tuned for the next episode.